You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore. I'm one of your hosts, and I am joined today, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Holly, how are you doing today? Hey, Robert. Hey, friends. I am doing really, really well today, actually. Yeah? Yeah, I'm really excited. Good. Um, what 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 makes you so excited? Why are you doing yeah. so well? So I am in the middle of packing right now. Hopefully you're not hearing any of the laundry going and on <laughs> in the background. But I am excited because this weekend I'm heading out to Omaha, Nebraska for a uh, retreat with the Gravity Center which is, it's a center for contemplative activism that Chris and Felina Hewart's run, but they're doing a retreat this weekend that I'm going to, which I will be back by the time this episode is launched, but I'm in the midst of prepping for it and I am so excited for it. That's awesome. Chris and Felina who, uh, we'll just, well, never mind. We'll just put an ellipses there and we'll leave that up to mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Pause there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Felina Hewitt wrote Pilgrimage of a Soul. Chris Hewitt wrote The Sacred Enneagram. And Felina is actually my spiritual director, too. So, hmm. you know, a lot of what we talk about in these shows, you know, we really try to practice what we preach. And and so one part of my spiritual growth and development has been uh, working with Felina um, over, I don't know, the last however many months or so. So I'm really excited to get to go out there this weekend and practice a little self-care and a little, um, you know, just a, a little chance to, you know, to, to be still and um, before I continue to go out and surf. So, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Well, that sounds really cool, though. I know like leaving and getting still is something that in general, I, I would bet most people would say they're not good at, you know? So uh, I think there was no. actually a, a bit of discussion about that in the, uh, the CXMH, the community Facebook group that uh-huh. pa- patrons are in. And there's a little bit of discussion around that recently as well, kind of how to do that and, and if we're mm-hmm. good at that or not. And I think, you know, overwhelmingly we would probably say, no, we're not good at that because that's not something yeah. that's particularly valued um, in, in our society, I would say, is stopping and resting and pausing and just being still. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that it's up for debate in terms of it, whether or not it's valued, but it's certainly not something that is celebrated overtly in the way that busyness is celebrated and achievements and um, and that is so much more celebrated. But I one of the things that I've learned, especially in my research and my work as a social worker, is that if we're not pausing and being still and tuning in, we really have to be thinking about what our motivations are for then going out and engaging in activism and advocacy and, you know, helping others. So I Mm. I think this is really, really important being able to do this work and pausing. And yeah, so I'm really excited about that. Yeah, well, we'll have to hear more about it next week on, on the intro for next week's episode, I suppose. Yes, I think that yeah, that sounds good. I can tell you all about it next week. So what about you? How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I actually, and I know you know this because we talk even when we're not doing recording uh-huh. intros yeah. <laughs> uh, a little bit, but I uh, actually earlier today on the day that we're recording this got to hang out with 
kind of this group of youth pastors. They get together once a month to have lunch and just talk about a variety of things. And they're kind of from all over the place. And they had me out a couple years ago. I guess I was trying to figure out when it was last that I went out there. I think it was a year and a half ago because I know, I remember talking about it with Steve on an intro that we recorded actually, which is funny. Uh, but probably a year and a half ago, they had me come out and just talk about general mental health things and answer questions and stuff like that. And so I went back out and did that today. And it's so fun. Those types of things are really encouraging to me. And I think I probably said this last time, but youth pastors in particular, I think are so willing to learn and like eager yeah. to learn and mm-hmm. like excited. And I guess, and you know, nobody angrily tweeted me that, that pastors are also that way. Cause I'm sure that they are, but I guess, right, right. you know, youth pastors are just so relationally involved and maybe it's because adolescence is such a huge time in, ter- in terms of mental health and emotions yeah. and, you know, yes, um, and so right. it's, it's so encouraging to sit with a bunch of people and, and eat lunch and have them ask tons of great questions and follow-ups and offer mm-hmm. thoughts and, you know, it's just really encouraging to be, in general, part of conversations that are so engaged and and passionate and and curious. Um, and so oh, it's so a lot of fun. Hopefully, I get to keep going back every year. Yeah, no, that's so awesome. And what you know, what a good idea too for pastors with a, with similar titles to be able to come together and think of these topics for to open up for discussion and have folks come in and talk. And just that this group is doing that and invited you, and in, I think that's just absolutely worth celebrating. That's yeah. awesome. Actually really funny. I was standing in the parking lot chatting with one of the one of the guys and another one pulled up and got out of his car and he said, ah, it's really weird. I was just listening to you talking in my car and then I pulled <laughs> in and you were standing here and I, oh, all right. Hey. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, that's good. They're listening. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so. awesome. Oh, that's so cool. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And I told you, I, I'm going to do a little hi, mom, in this. That just reminded me. My mom has been listening. And I know I told you this, that it's so fun hearing her and how she's been listening and taking notes in the episodes that we've been doing. And I love that, you know, just that, that engagement from listeners that they're reaching out to us and letting us know what they're, you know, that they are listening and, yeah. and what they're getting out of this. So. That's good. It's like a like a safe fallback just in case nobody listens to the show. At least right. probably our parents will. You know, <laughs> that's true. Well, and I will say, I mean, I've had colleagues and friends reaching out too, but I think it's really sweet. Um, and I, it means a lot hearing that my mom's been listening to it. So, yeah. hi yeah. mom. Hi mom. That's awesome. I did get like a bunch of good feedback about last week's episode with Dr. Corn and nutrition and all that. Um, yes. Got tons of different you know, feedback and and encouragement around that episode. So that was really cool. Me too. And even going back and listening through parts of it, again, just to be reminded of some of it, it was like, oh yeah, I've got to be, you know, how am I getting more water in? Or the last Mm -hmm. couple of days, actually, you would love this. The last couple of days, I have only had one cup of coffee. And so that is a huge win in my book that I'm choosing to just, you know, remember coffee is a drug. It's not a beverage. And (laughs) Well, that's been fun too, but yeah, yeah, yeah that was a great episode. Well, I think this week's episode will also be really great. It's one that I have been trying to get together for quite some time. It's, I think I probably mentioned this in the interview, but it's something that's really close to my heart. Longtime listeners will know that I worked in college ministry for a handful of years uh, in Auburn and in England and then in Oxford here in Georgia for a bit. And my wife runs a, a college ministry. And so 
this one is about college students, which is like right in the sweet spot for all of us. I know that you teach college university mm-hmm. setting, obviously. That's right. That's and then right. all of us, we've been college students multiple times, all of us. And, uh, you know, so it's really fun. I already have like a list in my head of people that I'm going to just go ahead and forward the link of this one to since I know like a thousand people that work in college ministry. Oh, yeah. That's a really good idea. Yeah. No, this, I loved this episode. I felt like it was so. I mean, in my with my hat as a professor, I felt like it was really practical even for me in thinking about how I'm working with students and engaging with students and, and thinking about even my faculty colleagues and how they're working with students as well. So I liked how it was just so multifaceted in terms of all the different layers of individuals who are working with college students. And hopefully it's really practical for college students too. Yeah. But I think it did a great job, this conversation. It shined a light on some issues and really highlighted some issues in higher education and or maybe I'll say growth opportunities in higher education, <laughs> um, but also recognizing some incredible resources we have in higher ed and how we you know, can utilize those to serve our students well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, if you want a really interesting visual for this episode, I actually, when we recorded this episode, a a training got scheduled after we had scheduled this episode. So I was like two hours away at a training all morning of this episode and then started to drive home and then stopped at a public library partway through the drive (laughs) and recorded this episode in a public library. So, uh, you know, hopefully there's not, you don't hear like rifling through books or me trying to be too quiet. (laughs) I kind of found a room off to the side, but uh, the whole time I was pretty concerned that somebody was going to walk in and tell me I wasn't allowed to have a a loud conversation or record it or whatever in there. Yeah. Like mid conversation, mid interview. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. No, I think it it sounded great. It went well and yeah, I loved it. Dr. Glass is awesome. So, yeah. Well, here you go. We will go ahead into our episode with Dr. Gary Glass on college and university students. Enjoy. Our guest today, we are joined by Dr. Gary Glass. He's a licensed psychologist who has been working with college students and serving various campus communities for over 20 years. He has a background in counseling and teaching, all sorts of great, great things, and then also is the director of a counseling center at a college or university. So, Dr. Glass, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. So glad to have you here. Yes. So glad to be here. Gary, other than your official credentials, is there anything that the audience should know about you? Well, I suppose it, it feels important that, that I share, you know, I am a licensed psychologist, but the longer I do this work, what I what I find increasingly is is that the the work is informed clearly by the, the training that I've received as a as a psychologist, but more and more that other perspectives, other academic disciplines, other ways of knowing really, really, I think, provide the the wisdom as well as the expertise that, that I think informs our work. And so that, that ranges from other academic disciplines like sociology, theology, but uh, poetry and music. And, and so I'm just really committed to allowing wisdom from a number of different um, dimensions or, or, or arenas to, to inform the work that we do because our our students, you know, and, and the people that, that we serve come with uh, far more complexity than can ever be captured in a single discipline. Hmm. That's so yeah. good. 
I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I think is going to be really cool about this conversation is we're we're talking today, obviously people who are listening to it, they've seen the title, but we're talking about college and university students and mental health. And what I think is cool is we have kind of almost every perspective that I can think of. All of us obviously have been college students two or three <laughs> times. Uh, you uh, you know do counseling on a college campus. Holly teaches on a college campus. Uh, I've done campus ministry for a number of years. So you know we're coming at this from a whole bunch of different ways. But let me ask you, what what made you want to work with college and university students? Well, you know, um, I was the first in my family to attend college, and when I when I think back uh, at graduating from high school, it was sort of a given that I was going to go to college. But when I arrived, what what struck me the most about college and this obviously doesn't apply to all colleges, and, and many of them are, are huge. They're more like cities now. But what, what really grabbed me was how an entire community was on a college campus, where we slept, the services that we needed, where we ate, the ways that community organizations, it, it's like a microcosm of, of a larger world, but one that because it's all contained within a structure, really allows us to, to be more intentional about how we approach life. And so I remember, you know, thinking how I've got to find a way to stay in college. <laughs> I did not want to, to leave in, in a lot of ways. And, you know, I often joke that I, I went to college in 1982 and I never left. But the reasons I think have shifted for me in that my identity as an educator is really uh, an important one to me because we play such a role in helping people think about who they are becoming. And I think our society is becoming faster and faster paced. Mm -hmm. And the blur that that causes uh, in our vision of our lives, I think comes at a great cost. And college, even though it is also very fast paced and, and has a lot of rapid demands, it contains a series of built-in breaks, and I think it allows us to actually pay closer attention to who we, who we are becoming, and that's just very exciting to me. The mm -hmm. fact that uh, I can see someone in private practice, and, and we will meet, you know, usually weekly, um, but even though I may not see a client of mine on a college campus, there's a chance that I will pass them in the library or in a classroom building, but something about actually existing as part of the community uh, where clients come to me feels like it adds a therapeutic layer. Mm, that's really good. Yeah. I, re I really love it, just especially how you were highlighting the fact that um, working alongside students, like we get to, I mean, it really is this privilege that we get to help students think about who they're becoming. And that is something that, I mean, I can say as a professor, I just, I love that, that partnership mm -hmm. and, and walking alongside them and offering that, uh, that space for them to be transformed into who they're created to be. So I just, I just love to that, how you Absolutely. mentioned that. Would you, can you tell us a little bit about like, what, what are some current trends that you are especially seeing um, with regards to mental health in the university, in university students, I guess, just 
overall or maybe what you're seeing in your practice or what you're reading about in the literature? What what are these trends that you're starting to see? Well, I think I'll start um, I'll start with sort of the, the, the trends as, as you would read if you were, you know, examining the, the literature, looking at some of the reports that, that are coming out. And I, I hesitate to call them trends because we tend to think of trends as you know, what seems to be happening now, but a lot of what I'm about to say has been happening uh, for a long, long time. Um, and, and that is that the increase of uh, students seeking counseling center services continues to, to climb. We are mm-hmm. seeing we're seeing reports of increased severity. And I, I do think that that there's accuracy in that. The explanations vary uh, from more people are aware of mental health as a as a as a as an issue. Uh, I think we are less concerned about stigma in some quarters of our society. Others, there's still a lot of stigma. Yeah. yeah. But I, I I really think that you talk to any counseling center professional across the country, and most of them will say we're seeing more than we did last year. And an interesting thing shifted. The the way the the, the prevalence rates are often described have to do with what we call presenting concerns. And somewhere around 10 years ago, the most common presenting concern was some, some kind of depression prior to, prior to that for, for quite a long time. I, I, I don't have the, the dates off the top of my head, but anxiety passed depression and has continued to be more prevalent uh, for the last several years, probably coming on a, a decade around now. Oh, and wow. to me, that's really significant. Yeah. Uh, it, and it's significant because uh, for, for two reasons. One, the word depression has now become part of our everyday language. Our students say, oh, I'm so depressed. And anxiety is now also becoming a term that students use when it would have been reserved to folks uh, with a diagnosis assigned to them by by a psychiatrist or a mental health provider, a a psychologist or a counselor. But I'm just aware that the students arrive telling us they have anxiety problems or anxiety disorders. Yeah. Mm. Now, for me, what's powerful about anxiety becoming more prevalent is that I have a very specific definition of anxiety. And it's simply this. Um, but first, I have to give you my definition of fear. And fear is the natural emotion that comes when you, when a person perceives or is in actual danger. And we all know what it feels like to be afraid. Our bodies tense and we have these facial expressions that really show we are afraid. Mm-hmm. I call anxiety fear plus a time machine and most of our students when they feel fear they've entered a time machine or they get into a time machine and most of what they're struggling with is not what's actually happening but their fears about what will or what will not happen in in their lives and so one of the things that i'm really interested in is shifting away from talking about talking about these issues in terms of just anxiety and depression mm-hmm. or eating disorders or substance abuse 
issues or addictions. Clearly, those are problems, but the context of those is what interests me the most. And what I'm aware of is that our students are scared and lonely. Mm. And mm. the, the, the huh. scared is sometimes that I'm going to end up alone. Mm. And the loneliness is sometimes I don't want anyone else to know how scared I am. Mm. Mm. Man. So let me ask you, you were talking right there about kind of this shift where students are more likely to come in and say, hey, I, I have depression or anxiety because we're, those things are more in the cultural consciousness, right? Like we're more aware of those. And so a lot of times, you know, I know we have audience members who are mental health professionals or youth pastors, campus pastors, whatever it is, and they'll say, do people really have more of these things or are they just applying those labels to, you know, I mean, everybody in college feels stress around finals, but now people are more willing to say, well, I'm, you know, it's anxiety attacks or whatever. Would you say that people, are they, are they experiencing them at a level that we would say is a, a more a problem than it was previously? Or are we just applying those labels to what our experiences would have been anyway? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I do think that our society has changed so rapidly in the past 15 to 20 years that I think we're all in, in, in some kind of perpetual adjustment. And, and so I do think there is some truth to more people are struggling with the experiences that we call depression and the experiences that we call anxiety. Um, and for that matter, the, the other issues that, that I think often uh, have people seeking help. And I do believe that because we have heightened the language of diagnosis in our everyday life, we are, are much more likely to keep an eye out for something and call it that. And so, for example, there, there, are, there are diagnoses that, that tend to start happening um, far more frequently once there's greater awareness of them. Two examples uh, in more recent years are uh, ADHD and uh, bipolar disorder. Now, I don't know that we've had an actual increase in the prevalence of that, but I, I am aware that the number of times that people say, I wonder if I have bipolar disorder, and they're likely to ask that question because they hear that word more, and then they show up to the counselor's office and say, I think I might have bipolar disorder. Um, we've got commercials saying, talk to your doctor, you may have, and so we have a, we have a mm -hmm. lot more communication around pharmaceuticals, yeah. and they all mm -hmm. point to asking the question, do I have this or do I not have this? Yeah. And I think that that is, is, is leading us to, to name it in this way more frequently. And, you know, I, I wonder how much of that is our society is increasingly medical in, in the way that we relate, such that we even think in terms of economic health rather than just economics. Yeah, so I guess the, the difference that you're describing there is essentially like talking about things kind of in a binary manner where either you have depression or anxiety or you don't, and it's a solution that can be solved as opposed to here's what I'm experiencing. How can we get some tools to shift that experience towards something exactly. that's more healthy? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. That, yep. Absolutely. And, you know, and it's it's really difficult because, you know, I've, I've been doing this work for long enough to know that there are there are individuals who have some condition, 
somewhere in their chemistry, in their electrical operating, in their in, in some combination of life dimensions, have what would most accurately be described as an illness. And it's easier to refer okay. to things like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder as an illness. And and there are folks that I can't, for the life of me, find any contextual explanation. And the medication that really gives them life-enhancing uh, experiences is undeniable. However, I also wonder what it would be like if we thought of these as skill deficits around managing emotions or effectively communicating hmm. um, and and thought of them as, as issues that educators would address as much as clinicians. Or to what extent is my feeling isolated and alone and withdrawing from my community a medical problem known as depression or is it a mm-hmm. spiritual problem? Mm. Or is it is it something even larger that reflects a social problem as I find myself really feeling beaten down by things that I'm hearing on the news way more than I that I did two or three years ago or five or six years ago? Yeah. So before we get into maybe specific ways that we could help or, or things like that, as you're talking about skill deficits and whatnot, I do want to ask, because I know you've written some about cultural factors that are on college campuses that are hurdles that university students are encountering, right? I think at one point you had listed seven. Can you talk some about some of those cultural factors that are maybe contributing to some of these skill deficits, you know, not knowing how to navigate through emotions, things like that? Sure, sure. Uh, I think you're referring to what, what I what I call the, the symptoms of, of, the, of the community or the symptoms of society. And and just to give you a little background, um, these these were, were things that I first noticed when I found myself working with a lot of students that struggle with disordered eating. And the original form of this was the underlying issues of eating disorders until year after year I began to notice, I'm seeing this in just about every, every client that I see. And so I call these predominant paradigms that are present a lot yeah. of sectors of our society. The first is we have uh, a society um, and, in, and in highly competitive settings, um, elite uh, colleges and universities, but also uh, highly competitive work settings uh, or communities, we see a strong emphasis on certainty and control. I have to have control. I must uh-huh. this. I have to do that. Yep. I have to have a lot of certainty. Uncertainty is just not tolerated. The second is related to that, and that is an increased worship of the quantified. Everything is valued when I can put a number to it, whether it's GPA for students, whether it's number of entries on my resume, whether it's the ranking of the school that I attend, whether it's the number of followers on Hmm. Twitter, the number of likes on Facebook, the number of calories. We are a a society that is obsessed with numbers. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't have to say a whole lot to to talk about what risk that puts us at in terms of dehumanizing who we are. Yeah. 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 Finding value in those things. Mm -hmm. Then I see that there is a a banishment of vulnerability. There's a Mm -hmm. show no weakness. Um, There's a 
uh, don't let them know you sweat. And this one's a little tricky because we also have a lot of people who are way more open and revealing a lot of struggles they have. Mm-hmm. But it isn't always a vulnerability in which they share. It's more like uh, sort of uh, announcing information about themselves. But for me, mm-hmm. vulnerability is a necessary ingredient in any kind of intimacy or connection. Hmm. Yeah, and, I love that. And, and I'd I, actually, oh, go sorry, ahead. go ahead. Well, I was going to say what you're describing with that that sense of oversharing sometimes. I know um, Brene Brown talks about as floodlighting when you just put everything out there all at once when the person who is receiving that information or hearing that information may not necessarily be, um, it may not be appropriate for them to hear it or they may not have, I hate to say the word earn, but to earn that respect and reverence. To, right. to hear that information. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me think about the difference between posting on social media or something like that, you know, hey, I've had a really rough day versus going to a close friend, family member who you know is going to be there, have some kind of relationship and saying, hey, I've had a really bad day, right? One of those is mm-hmm. kind of shallow. I'm just throwing it out there. And one of those is maybe we think of the first one as vulnerability, but the second one, you know, actually opens you up to inviting somebody else into that with you, which is a whole different mm-hmm. thing. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so those are just a few of, of, of those paradigms that I think are, are, are very widespread. And I think that they contribute to the scared and lonely uh, that I was referencing earlier. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I think there, there's, there's also, um, we have a lot of difficulty being okay, being in the now, in the present. I think we, we tend to get into that time oh machine goodness. that I referenced. Yep. And, and of course, you know, we're bombarded with messages that, that make us afraid that if we don't do something or buy something, then we're, we're going to miss out or, or be harmed in some way. I do also worry that, that there is a devaluation of, of the feminine, and I'm not simply referring to things in, in a gender way but I'm I'm although I do acknowledge that on a worldwide scale the harm that we do to women needs to be attended to uh, but I'm referring more to this emphasis on product versus process outcome mm-hmm. versus process mm-hmm. this uh, logic over intuition productivity versus expression and there's just a lot of ways in which the things that are valued and celebrated only represent some of our dimensions and others are devalued. And of course, the ways in which we marginalize other, whether it's through some of our oppressive systems like racism, sexism, homophobia. Also, you know, when we would just marginalize someone because on a elite college campus, for example, they're wanting to major in something that isn't associated with, you know, a lucrative career, for example. And all of this, I think, links to the, the sort of mandate to pursue power and status while not admitting that we're doing so mo- much of the time. But I do think that the, the, the need to, to have influence and, and to have association with that which is impressive, these are, all, these are all mandates that we often get without realizing that that's the water we're swimming in. Hmm. Gosh, this is so good. I mean, and it just as you're talking about each of these, I mean, I've been thinking about not only what I'm hearing from some of my students, like circling back to the first one on that emphasis on control and certainty, you know, and control. And 
I mean, as a professor, I so often hear students where they're just so focused on the grade. Mm -hmm. And I guess that also goes to that increased worship of the quantified rather than the process as you were touching on with that devaluation of the feminine and the learning and the growth. And, you know, um, even going back to what you said much earlier of that, just that process of students becoming who they are and walking alongside them as they're becoming like, that's really hard to be becoming when you're not tending to each of these other areas. And, you know, so often thinking about even how faculty are modeling some of this too, right? Mm -hmm. And how the tenure process, which many of our listeners um, may or may not be familiar with, but, you know, just how that process kind of emphasizes this as well. And it's just kind of so deeply embedded on college campuses. So Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the, the, the professionals in public health are, are really important guides for us because they remind us to, to look not only at the individual, but the relationship, the community, and even the infrastructure of the, of the society and the institutions that we're in. Mm-hmm. Because it's hard to persuade students to not be concerned about grades when they're attending universities that really highlight where their rankings are, either nationally or in the state or in their regions. And you're referencing the the pressure that faculty face. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I, I suspect this this is true in all all arenas mm-hmm. where we're all afraid, and we're I think we're we're taught to be. Yeah. And even a lot of these, we're talking about it bleeding down from adults to college students and things like that. But I do think it it even bleeds down further. Back a couple of years ago, I was teaching middle and high school, and I asked one of my seventh graders what he was doing that weekend, and he said, with a completely serious, you know, he wasn't joking at all, he said, oh, you know, me and my parents are going to look at some colleges that I'm going to and figure out what my GPA needs to be. <laughs> oh, my god! And gosh. I thought, I can't even process that in seventh grade I knew what college was, you know, I mean, obviously, yeah. but I mean, just that level of pressure so soon and that level of, yeah. you know, it hits a bunch of these, but the forward looking and worship of the quantified, I mean, that's all of that wrapped up in one. Yeah. And yeah. it's a lot of pressure to live up to the bumper sticker your parents put on their car when you were in elementary school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's something that I, I, I really uh, want to be clear. I'm not a, uh, I, I, I struggle a lot when society gets into this parent blaming mode because I I really don't blame parents because mm-hmm. one of the things that that that's part of that first paradigm around intolerance for uncertainty is we don't do well with paradox and to yeah, me right. coming to terms with the fact that some of the most loving and kind things we do when we do them driven by a fear we do not recognize can have consequences we do not anticipate. And, you know, as someone who received probably more accolades than I needed to from my mother, I don't resent her for this, but I do recognize that a lot of my motivation wasn't becoming who I was. A lot of my motivation was maintaining who everyone thought I was. Oh, man, that's hard. And I think a lot of our students aren't aware that they've created an avatar of themselves that they delegate to represent them in their day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. And when that avatar becomes too different from who they actually know they are, that's when the loneliness, the loneliness and, the, and the scared really become pronounced 
in a way that's probably diagnosable. Oh my gosh. This is so good. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, I do appreciate you mentioning the piece too about the parents because something that, that I often find with um, other friends who have kids and my husband and I, we have two little ones, you know, there really is this process of parents are doing, I think the best they can with what they have And, um, so you bringing up that, that piece as well, I think is really important. So, yeah. One of my favorite quotes uh, on this issue is, is actually from Bob Dylan, who apparently was reading a review of himself. That was just this glowing review. And as he's reading this description of who he is, he uttered the phrase, I'm so glad I am not me. (laughs) And... (laughs) I've held on to that because it's it's been a it's been a helpful reminder to me that the me that I am is probably pretty close to who everyone's impressed by, but my belief that that public version is so different from me can really be a source of struggle. Mm. Yeah, Gosh. that's really good. Some of what we're talking about here certainly they they sound like things that have been around for a long time that we've we've struggled with certainly things that we're struggling with today but but historically we have in, in a number of different ways you know it makes me think of the the phrase that we can't lead others to do something that we haven't done yet so even thinking about some of these different factors I'm I'm realizing we we can't encourage or support others to do that if we haven't done it but thinking about how these have been so embedded in, in our culture for so long um, that some might say are getting better, such as, you know, like sexism or racism or any of those those isms. And especially, as you mentioned, the process of marginalizing others. Do you see these factors as being different from previous generations or in times or do you see them as being pretty consistent and we're still kind of struggling with um, how to grow from these or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I do think there's something cyclical, um, and you know, I guess the first thing that comes to mind when I when I hear your question is that the universe seems to be created in a way that moons orbit around planets, planets orbit around suns, and you know, seasons cycle in and out, and so there is something apparently quite circular about existence. And and so for me, there is some truth to there's really nothing new under the sun. But I do believe that there is something different about the way in which we understand these things. So, for example, just using racism and sexism, I think that is as ugly a reality today as it ever has been. But we have more vocabulary to deconstruct it Mm -hmm. than we did before on a larger scale. Mm -hmm. When I was going through college, the idea of gender or race privilege was only in academic journals. But I think that's something now that school kids know about. So the problems aren't gone, but I do think that we have to pay attention to the orbit that they're in and -hmm. realize that the language that we use to address them needs to be informed by going back to, to what I said earlier, how much of racism today is fear, but in a in a different context? And mm, what's mm-hmm. what's the fear that's driving this? I do believe fear is at the root of hatred, and yeah. and so uh, if we can stay curious about why we are repeating patterns, 
and do that in the context of where we are now, um, hopefully we'll, we'll continue to, to heal and learn. Hmm. So oh, that's good. what do we do to move forward? I mean, I know, so we're talking about some trends that are escalating or people are just more aware of it or, or willing to seek help. And a lot of colleges and universities have some form of on-campus counseling services, things like that. But when I think about all the universities that I'm familiar with or colleges, almost every single one have a long waiting time or students have a hard time getting in. I mean, are we mm-hmm. as as higher ed institutions, are, are we just underprepared or what can we do about that? Well, I can tell you what what I, I believe is is necessary is that we move to a much more integrated model of student development mm. in in higher education Yeah, such that... We, we have spent decades educating campus communities about the signs and symptoms of psychological disorders, and we've provided wonderful training on how to refer them to services. We've done a lot of work on helping people connect to the counseling center. And I'm beginning to, to think that perhaps what we need to do is to reinvite all of the members of the campus community to see themselves as therapeutic agents. Mm. And if we just borrow from the paradigms for a moment, if we were able to, to give everyone that we've given over the last several decades the information that has allowed them to recognize the symptoms of depression, for example, can we trust that they're able to learn how to have conversations about scared and lonely. And the difference is depression and anxiety inherently points to the need for a licensed clinical mental health professional. Scared and lonely simply requires somebody who knows what it's like to be scared and lonely that says, I can relate. Mm. Mm, That's good. And so, what I, what I think has been helpful, I think it has saved lives, is what, what I refer to as the recognize and refer model of college mental health to one that expands that to recognize and relate. Hmm. And so then the, what we do isn't just teach people when to send someone to the counseling center, but teach people to recognize, wow, this student is really focusing on certainty in a big way and control in a big way. and Help them ask different kinds of questions other than you have these signs and symptoms. For example, I like to ask folks, what is the opposite of control? 99% of the time, the answer I get is chaos. Whether I'm talking to five people or whether I'm asking this in an auditorium of over a thousand people. What if, what if campus professionals from campus ministries to the folks that are in residence life to the folks that are uh, leading uh, student activities to faculty. What if we asked them to, to, to shift the conversation to um, maybe the opposite of control isn't chaos. What if the opposite of control is trust? Mm. Mm, that's yeah. good. That starts conversations. And that's what's actually happening in these counseling centers. We have the conversations that don't happen in other places. So if we look at a more integrated model and every different type of community being more supportive, more ready to have these conversations, right? Campus ministries or faculty, staff, parents, I mean, you know, local churches, whatever it is. Is there a line then where we say, 
hey, we need to kind of all be more supportive. But at some point, there are things that, you know, you're, you're not equipped to handle as a campus minister, as a faculty member. I mean, where's, where's the line there for people that would say, well, that's not their role? Yeah. Well, it depends on what, what they say their role is. And, and so the first question that I would pose is, what are the common roles that we all have? So let's start there. Is it our role as uh, faculty members, for example, to engage in mentoring? And what elements of mentoring are actually going to uh, have some of the benefits of a psychotherapy session? But what I want to highlight is I'm not suggesting that members of the campus community uh, try to become engaged in psychotherapy, this, this process mm-hmm, that I've received right. a lot of training in. Yeah. But I do, I do think that one of the things that kind of going back to the trends is that our society has really become uncomfortable with emotions of any kind. And so yeah. if a student starts to cry, the impl- implication is that there's something going on emotionally that they need to see a counselor. Hmm. Often when there's been a death on campus, one of the first things that, that the administrators do, which I don't think is inappropriate, it's to make sure that they know about the counseling center resources and the counseling staff are always called to come to the residence halls. And I'm glad that we do that because we're, we're, we're able to help. However, we are sending a message that the natural experience of grief is something that requires a mental health professional. Mm. Mm. And the natural support systems have lost self-efficacy I think in the course of my lifetime, because I can still remember when this phrase became part of our society, uh, which is, hmm, maybe you should talk to someone about that, which is code (laughs) for you shouldn't schedule an appointment with a professional therapist. And so the line, I think, is when you see that the student's functioning is no longer consistent with someone who's able to do what they're expected to do in college, go to class, Mm -hmm. um, engage in hygiene, Mm -hmm. be able to uh, sleep and eat the way their bodies naturally uh, operate. So when, when these things start to happen where there's a clear disruption of a person's functioning and missing class or if they're uh, indicating through their words on paper or in conversation things that are alarming in a way that is clearly bizarre or they're making explicit references to to violence against others or themselves then Uh those are the clear markers we need to connect this person to someone who's got the skills and training to really explore this but when we're hearing students talk about all of the stress that they're under to ask more questions, and I think questions around how they navigate certainty, how often they feel like they can't be authentic, what are the ways in which they feel lonely, but they they can't let others see that. So where we actually begin having more conversations, and I like the simple question of hopes and fears. Hmm. So hopes and fears, do you mind expanding, like, like the simple question, just asking students or, or what? Yeah, do you- I, I think asking students, but also listening, listening right. for what the hopes and fears are in the comments that students make. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I really, I, I'm really, it's so interesting hearing and, you know, some of what you're mentioning and thinking about 
you know, my, my role as a faculty member and how I've done this with students and, and may in some ways have failed to, but I think going back to something that you mentioned earlier with that recognize and relate, I think that's so important. So even trying to identify ways to maybe equip um, members of the community to recognize and discern, you know, when to, in what situations it really is appropriate to relate versus, you know, refer. I think that's so important. And, and I really appreciated you, you know, highlighting that as well as highlighting those common roles that we all have. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's really, really well explained. And, you know, you brought up grades, which I want to just say something about because yeah. uh, the students are are not insane when they are concerned about things, when they know that everyone else in the world is, is concerned with numbers. Mm -hmm. But I, I really think a, a conversation that faculty and, and other members of the campus community, but especially students, can have is, what do you think this grade that I gave you actually reflects? Because students often experience the grades in ways that are so inconsistent with any professor I've ever known. Yeah. It's everything from this professor can't stand me uh, mm. to this, this it's got nothing to do with the professor at all. It's I don't get beats. That's yeah. not who I am. Yeah. And I, I always like to tell the student, the professor's grade is their best attempt to give you feedback on whether you learned what they hoped they had taught you. Yeah. Yep. That's so right. You're absolutely right. And I do so often, you know, hear that with students that they almost feel like their identity is defined by that grade. And it's crushing as a faculty member who deeply cares about the students and their learning. And, and I understand in so many cases why that grade has so much weight for them, but it's hard it's really hard to um, to hear that sometimes from students when it's like you are defined by this. This isn't who you are. Um, so, Robert, what do you what are you thinking? Well, yeah, that I was gonna ask because there there is this tension. You know, when I was doing campus ministry or even when I was teaching high school, you know, my instinct was to say, "Hey, well, you're, look, you're worrying about grades too much. You're putting too much emphasis on them, whatever." But if the reality is that there are very real things. There are situations in the world where that's how they'll be evaluated to say yeah. to somebody, hey, yeah. you're putting too much weight on this when they're putting the amount of weight that the larger culture tells them to put on it. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do we navigate yep. that tension? Well, I think okay. what we do is we, we, we actually give them some information about the nuances there because there are some arenas in which their actual GPA matters. I think the most common that students refer to are medical schools. There are certain professions such as law where there are certain firms that want to know what the class rankings are. So, but that is just a small subset of yeah. all of the opportunities in life. Mm -hmm. But the students operate as if that applies everywhere. And so to be able to ask them, do you actually have a specific goal in mind, as in a place you're applying to, where you know how they use your grades? Mm -hmm. And first and second, your students can't possibly have that information. And so <laughs> I tell yeah. them, can you get back in the time machine and come to now and use the grade yeah. to guide you, not to define you? That's so good. 
Oh, that's so, so good. And even you bringing up, I appreciate you bringing up like medical school and law school, but I also am very aware that financial aid is a big part of this too Mm -hmm. and scholarships. And that is a crushing weight for many students today, especially seeing, you know, some of the numbers coming out about student loans right now. And, Mm. and just, I recognize that that's so often tied to their GPA as well. So um, well, and, yeah. it, and, it, and it often can be, but the solution to improving your GPA is not fighting over a particular grade. Yeah. The solution to improving your GPA is not worrying about your grades. In fact, that's likely to decrease it. Yep. The solution to increasing your GPA is reduce the fear that you have in your life. And you mm-hmm. can't do that until you notice the fear that you have mm-hmm. in your life. Because fear compromises your critical thinking skills. Amen. That is so true. Oh, that's good. And so I think what we need to change the conversation to isn't grades, but the fear, the predictions that they're making based on their assumptions about grades. The grades is the, is the, is the surface but it's a fear of my future is not going to be the one that I had created in my time machine travels. And so I often say it isn't fear of failure. It's fear of future. Yeah. And I wonder if brainstorming alternatives or even trying to look at things more realistically, because say that it's true. If you fail this class, you won't get into a certain medical school or law school, right? But there's a thousand medical schools and any of them would be good. And you could still, if your ultimate goal is be a doctor, I mean, I couldn't tell you where a single doctor I've ever known has gone to college. I mean, you know, so what's, what's the realistic outcomes here? not kind of the worst case. Right. Mm-hmm. And it isn't it isn't you won't be a doctor. Is you won't be a doctor on the timeline and on the path that you thought you were on, which uh, again I think goes back to the issue of of certainty and control is uh and and this is where I, I do think, you know, folks who who have faith lives can can really benefit from remembering that they're they're really robbing the divine of any input on their story. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, that's so, so good. Oh, Gary, I'm like, I'm, I swear I'm just chewing and thinking about how can I apply this with my students and my faculty. And I am just so, so thankful for this, this information that you've given us today. Well, I'm glad. And, and to answer your question, just continue the conversation, Holly. And, and I do believe that, you know what we call psychotherapy that, that is, is we often refer to that as talk therapy. And yeah, I do yeah. believe that your excitement about this, I suspect, is not because I have said things that you did not know. Yeah. I suspect that I've said things that you simply realize you haven't considered in a while. And so I've reminded you of some truths. I haven't given you any. Wow. Oh. Mm. Well, that is very helpful. Thank you. And and you can continue that conversation with your students and your and your colleagues. Yeah, thank you. That's good. Dr. Glass, is there anywhere online that people can connect with you or read more of your thoughts or anything like that? Um, there, there is an incomplete, in constantly under construction uh, site. So I, I don't think I want to offer that right now. But I. I am on LinkedIn, although I'm really bad at, at, at staying current with that. But uh, right now, I'm, I'm sort of incognito because 
my work's keeping me pretty busy here. Yeah, no, that's totally yeah. fine. Hey, if you want to connect with Holly, you can find her at hollyoxhandler.com or on Twitter at hollyoxhandler. If you want to connect with me, you can find me at robert-vore.com or on any social media at Robert Vore. Gary, before we close out, do you have any any last thoughts or, or words for our audience? I have one. Let's all remember that we have the natural abilities to be both resilient and scared. And if we can learn to embrace the, the completeness, the wholeness of who we are, I think, I think we're all going to be okay. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us yeah. today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHPodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.